Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. As we've grown up, no matter where we are, whether it's in corporate America, whether it's in starting your own business, we always try to fix what's broken in us. We want to be better at what's bad. We want to be better at what we're what our weaknesses are. And we're gonna learn how do we use those as strengths rather than as weaknesses. How do we love and incorporate and build upon the things that maybe we're not great at? And we all have them and we all fixate on them. And we're gonna talk about why that's a good thing and how we can make the best of those. This is Adam Fitness, host of the Entrepreneurs Podcast. Really appreciate everyone being here today and listening. I think this is gonna be a fascinating topic that we can really all learn from. I wanna thank my sponsors. Uh, C-Suite Radio is our platform that we're on and our powertexting.com is the main sponsor. So I wanna thank them. They give away a free hotel stay to one listener of every show that I do. So stay tuned in a little bit for more information on that. Today's guest has made his life's mission to be hilarious and helpful. We're gonna make this as fun and funny as possible. He's a stand-up comedian with a doctorate in management, the class clown turned leadership professor who went from disrupting classes to teaching classes about disrupting companies and conferences all around the world. After being criticized and punished his whole life for being hyperactive, he now channels that frantic energy into to compete in Ironman triathlons and ultramarathons. We're going to dig into why he decides he wants to run 100 miles for any reason. He wears a lot of pink, and so we'll figure that out as well. David Rendell, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about it. Yeah, this is going to be a really fun conversation because we're, we're taught in American society. You speak all over the world, so it'll be interesting to learn if other people... All societies, well. yeah. It's not, <laughs> not unique. In fact, it may be worse in other places. Sometimes I go other places, and they're like, at least in America, you're better at this, and we're not. But it's definitely everywhere now. Really? All right. So, yeah, that's something I didn't know and something I really wanted to ask you. But I want to start out with sort of how did you get to where you are? We all, especially being the class clown, now large companies, whether it's AT&T, Microsoft, United Health, Fannie Mae, they've all brought you on stage. How did you get from being the class clown and the person that teachers hate to have in their class to now being a recognized person that they want to bring you in front of their employees because of that? Tell us a little bit about, about that story. Well, it's, it, it's because I realized uh, some of the things you've already been saying, that the, the thing that I was trying to stop doing, the thing that I was trying to fix about myself, the thing that everybody told me was wrong with me and was going to make me unsuccessful, I started gradually seeing in small ways that it was actually working, that, that people wanted me to sit still. But, uh, you know, when I was standing up and up front, that went really well. People wanted me to be quiet when I was communicating. That went really well. People wanted me to do what I was told. But when I went out on my own, things were working. So it was just that gradual discovery that my former strategies were wrong because all my other strategies were built on doing what my parents and teachers and employers told me to do, which was to sit still, be quiet, and do what I was told. And so I was busy trying to fix those weaknesses. And so I absolutely was not building on those strengths. And so once I started getting that, getting a taste that, wait a second, you know, I did this five-minute talk at the Chamber of Commerce to help 
create awareness for our nonprofit. Um, and people were laughing and people were having fun and I had fun. Why why can't I stand up and talk? Why can't I do my own thing? Why can't I try things my way? Why do I need to do things my way? So I just started gradually exploring that and small talks led to bigger talks still for free early on, you know, helping out the Chamber of Commerce, helping out the notary, speaking at a local college, um, doing conferences for, for nonprofit groups for you know lunch. And um, people started referring me, and those talks started to be paid talks, and the paid talks led to more paid talks, and, and here we are 15 years later. So it really started with that realization that maybe the thing that I was trying to suppress about myself, that I was trying to moderate control, is actually something I should unleash. And when I did, uh, not only was I happier, but the people around me loved it, and it, and it led to telling other people hey you got to see this guy you got to hear this guy you got to hire this guy i love that so when you in doing that when did it become apparent to you that this was a business right because giving talks yeah. is one thing but building a business around it and forming that when did that yeah. relationship happen for you yeah, I remember exactly when it happened. I did a free talk, like I said, to help out at the nonprofit where I was working at a local university for like a leadership conference they were doing. And somebody saw me and without me knowing referred me to the National Association of Court Appointed Special Advocates. Um, and uh, they called me up and said, hey, we could pay you $900 to do an hour and a half talk. And they apologized for paying me so little. Um, and at that point, $600 an hour was a pretty solid fee um, compared to my normal salary. And so I thought, wait a second, they're apologizing for paying me $900 and covering all my expenses to do a talk that I've already prepared. Um, there must be something here. Um, so it wasn't until that was probably 2004, 2005, almost 15 years ago, I didn't know there was such a thing as a speaking industry, a speaking business. Um, like I said, it was just part of my job. And I was just exploring it on that side. I didn't really know that there were, you know, I knew Matt Foley, you know, motivational speaker. I knew those jokes like from Saturday Night Live, but I didn't know that there was an opportunity to speak for a living and to have that be your soul So where, where's the division? Where's the division between motivational speaker and leadership speaker? Because what what people bring you in for is the knowledge, but the motivation to get people to act on it is critically important. How do you balance those two and, and where was that transition? Well, I don't think it ever was a transition and I think it still just depends on who you talk to. Some people, if I tell them I'm a professional speaker, they go, oh, are you a motivational speaker? And other people might say, what do you speak about? And I say, mostly leadership, uh, but it's also about parenting and, and marriage and teaching. And so it is really a lot of motivation and what is leadership except for a lot of motivation. So I think everybody needs motivation and i think we have those kind of stereotypes about the bad motivational speaker but i i don't i don't fight that and i don't mess with that it's a motivational speaker that's great um i think i do give people a lot of motivation but there hopefully is a lot more substance behind it than just some entertainment and just some fun and just some brief motivation hopefully it has an impact on people's lives over the long term because motivation gets us excited but it doesn't necessarily get us to act and to implement the things that, that you talk about yeah. so in your presentations when you're talking to companies how do you get people to get a little bit past that immediate motivation and make it continue on how do you get people to act yeah. well 
Well, I really try to give people a framework. So um, I talk to people about four parts of thinking differently about their weaknesses and other people's weaknesses, and then four ways to behave differently towards other people and towards themselves and embrace their weaknesses. Um, I have an assessment that helps people see themselves differently and see how their weaknesses can be strengths. So, for example, um, somebody picks on the strengths page that they're persistent, and on the weaknesses page, they pick that they're stubborn, and then on the last page, you see, wait a second, persistence and stubbornness are the same thing, right? It's a weakness, it's a strength, it's a quality with, with, with two sides, and I don't need to be less stubborn, I need to be more persistent, I need to stop worrying about who tell me I'm stubborn and I need to focus on building a life around the fact that I'm more persistent than the average person, that's where I'm going to find success. So I think by making a significant, um, you know, it's not a minor thing to go from thinking that the way to succeed is to fix weaknesses to flipping that completely upside down and saying, not only do I not need to fix them, I need to amplify them and turn up the volume on them. And so I think it's such a big shift in the way people think. I mean, I've had people go home from the talk, and one guy sent me an email, for example, and he's like, I sat down with my 16-year-old, and I apologize. You know, I've had people change their entire business. So if somebody really gets it, and they really understand, if I really convince them that weaknesses are, in fact, also strengths, and that they should be amplifying them, not fixing them, there's no kind of mild response to that. There's only a massive response to that if you actually believe that it's true because it's not a slight adjustment to the way you do things it impacts absolutely everything every single day in the way you live our lives. Growing up in school our teachers try to temper what we're bad at. They they try and, and change us and tell us we need to conform in certain ways and that we need to do certain things. And we take that into we, we take that really wholeheartedly and we spend a lot of our lives saying i'm bad at this so i need to fix this and i used to manage people and, and in doing so the, the, the corporate sort of business model is to look at everyone's weaknesses and say how can we improve yeah. rather than, than the improvement we want to work <coughs> We want to work on why we can make it better. What What's one thing that people can do in looking at themselves and say, all right, I don't need to continue to fixate on this. I don't need to continue to try and fix this. How do we use those weaknesses in a positive way? I guess a better question is, how do we understand them so we can then embrace them? Yeah, so that's really the first part is you can't embrace it if you don't see there's an upside. So step one, is to connect that weakness to a strength. So messy people tend to be creative. Someone who's inflexible is oftentimes organized. That stubborn person is often persistent. That person you think of criti as critical and judgmental is oftentimes analytical. It's seeing the upside. It's finding that that quiet and shy person doesn't have a problem. They're thoughtful and reflective, and they like to put more time and energy into thinking about things and mulling things over than other people might. And so they actually have better insights than that person who's talking all the time and seems to be really involved. So step one is absolutely that you have to see that the weakness isn't just a weakness, it's also a strength. That's why the main thing that I do with people is the assessment. It's on my website. It's free. It's in the book. You just pick your strengths from a list of 50, pick your weaknesses from a list of 50, and then you see on the last page how they're connected. 
And so if you can reframe that weakness as also a strength, not that it's not a weakness, it is still a weakness, but it's also a strength, and then ask, wait a second, what if I built a life around more of this, finding situations that reward me for being like this? Um, what if I stop trying to do things that require me to be um, work in my area of weakness and be something that I'm not? What if I partnered with people who were good at the things that I'm bad at instead of trying to fix them myself? But you're not going to do any of those follow-up strategies if you're like, well, this is terrible. This is a terrible quality that I have to eliminate. But the only way to get started is to say, okay, what's good about this bad thing about me? And that's why I created the assessment because before I had that and I would do my speeches, that was the number one question I'd get. Okay, this sounds great, Dave, and I see how this is true for you, but what's good about this bad thing about me? So that's where it starts seeing how the weakness is a strength and then saying, okay, okay, I see now. How do I get more out of that? How do I turn up the volume on that strength? And you can get that assessment and you can do that at drendall.com, D-R-E-N-D-A-L-L.com. And you can get that assessment. I'll also put it in the show notes for everybody. Where, where does that end though? Because we all can really fixate on our weaknesses. And how do we, how do we pick the one or how do we not overanalyze our weaknesses and, and, try, and try and work on those? How do we pick the, the one weakness that we have in ourselves? Uh, I don't think we picked the one. I think there's a whole series, and sometimes that creates a series of strengths. And then one of the big questions is how can I kind of pile those strengths together um, to be even more successful? So I don't think it's a single weakness, a single strength sort of situation. I think you want to see as clear of a possible picture as you can how um, a series of your weaknesses are also a series of strengths. Because one of the things people fear about with the focus on your strengths and don't worry about your weaknesses it's sort of being one-dimensional and what about the things i can't do um, and so it's seeing how you can kind of build that that superpower out of a series of strengths which are connected to a series of your weaknesses so i don't think it's picking one or picking the biggest one i think it's seeing how it's true for all of them and looking for ways the ultimate success is when you can put all of your strengths to work in your day-to-day -day life and your day-to-day -day work um, and you can use all of the best parts of who you are and not have to worry about any of the worst parts of who you are in the And so now you've just you know, flipped my entire business model on its head because one of the things that I talk about with my folks a lot is let's focus on what you're good at and do more of it and let's get people and hire people to do what we're bad at. We all spend a lot of time doing stuff that we're bad at and that our weakness is in us. And I want them to say, all right, let's hire those. But you're, tell, you're telling us and, and you talk about how do we utilize those? And where's that division? And how do we, how do we know, again, how, do, how not to only use our strengths, but utilize our weakness? Where's the balance in those two things? Well, no, 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 we're saying the same thing. So when I say your weakness is also a strength, there's a downside. There's this thing you can't do. I don't sit still well. That's why I like to stand up and keep moving. I don't, I'm not good at being quiet. Um, and so I'm up talking. I don't like to do what I'm told. And so I'm busy um, running my own business. So um, you're exactly right. I'm big picture. I'm not detail oriented. So I want to maximize that strength, big picture. I want to minimize that weakness, not through fixing it, but through, for example, like you said, relationships. Have an executive assistant who keeps me organized, who helps me manage things, uh, 
I don't know how to do graphic design and web design. I don't need to figure that out and get better at that. I can hire somebody to do that. So you're exactly right. The, the last strategy in the framework is to partner with people who are strong where you're weak. Hire people who have what you don't have. You need to be 100% focused on your strengths and building on your strengths. There's always going to be that thing you don't have, though, because of that thing you do have. You're super creative, uh, but you're super messy. That's the weakness. So need things to be organized, don't get more organized, hire somebody to help you get organized. Uh, so no, you're 100% right. It's not that the, the weakness is the same strength. It's that there's always going to be another side of the story. I'm tall, so I'm not short. I hit my head on things. I don't fit easily on airplanes. Um, there's a downside to every upside. There's upside to every downside. So no, you're exactly right. I want people to amplify who they are, I want people to find situations that make them successful and allow them to use their strengths. I want them to run away as fast as they can from situations that require them to fix their weaknesses. And to your point, the last step is partner with people who are strong where you're weak, build those relationships with people who have what you don't have. You're strong where they're weak, they're weak where you're strong. That's the way to have a great partnership. I love that. And, and I love being 100% right. So I appreciate that. Um, it makes me feel good about myself. So yeah. as you're building the business, so you get that $900 speaking gig. And yeah. I'm assuming, like everyone else, you didn't go straight to the top. And all of a sudden, you've got a million speeches that you have to do. What, where, where in business, where was that first sort of kick in the butt that you needed to get you further, but also could have derailed the entire thing? Do you have a yeah, you have so, a where, where so that happened? You're right that it didn't happen all at once, but there was no real kick in the butt or any kind of like like trigger moment. It was a slow burn. So I at the time I got the first nine hundred dollar talk, I moved from working as an executive as a, at, a, at a nonprofit to teaching college. I had my doctorate in management leadership, and uh, my family was moving down south, and so we moved to North Carolina, and I got a job teaching management leadership. And so that's when I got that first call, that first referral, that first big speech. Um, and um, I thought, oh, there's something here. And so I, you know, put up a website uh, with a friend of mine, you know, did it for free and it was probably terrible, you know, and I printed the business card. And I dedicated three hours a week to building my business. Initially, I thought it might be like a consulting business or maybe a training business. And so a lot of it early on was just, again, free talks, you know, for the, um, some, professor flaked out on a talk she was supposed to do for the Society of Training and Development uh, about an hour away and I showed up and there were six people there. Um, one of my former students asked me to speak at the Rotary and there were six people there and five of them were 100 years old. Um, <laughs> but one of them wasn't and, and, and this is a microcosm of my business and she ran a home care agency and had hundreds of nurses working for her and she liked my talk at the Rotary for two said you speak for nurses on nurses day and i did two talks for them on nurses day and they thought that was fantastic and we come speak for our leadership team and i came and spoke to their leadership team and they really liked that and one of the people on their leadership team was on the board of the, the state association for home and hospice care and so she got me a small breakout session at the uh, home and hospice care conference state conference and that went well and um uh, their keynote speaker at lunch were sucked pretty bad. Um, and so I followed up with them on email and said I could do a good job at speaking 
um, at the senior level and they gave me a shot. And uh, the coordinator said it was the best one she'd seen in 30 years. And so when they needed to uh, host the conference for state association directors from the entire country, uh, they brought me in and I got three hours in front of 25 state association directors, all of whom have one or two conferences every year. And then that led to me speaking at conferences uh, all over the country for those people. Um, and then not only that, I probably spoke seven or eight times more at the state association in North Carolina. And then they had me at that state association directors meeting again, like seven or eight years later. And I'm still doing talks from that one terrible, ridiculous rotary talk in front of six people, five of whom were 85 years old. Um, because it went well and it led to something, which led to something, which led to something, which led to something. So over the course of 10 years, my speaking business became 80% of my income, my college salary became 20% of my income. Um, in 2013, I quit teaching full-time to do the business full-time, not on the back of sort of like straight up intentional effort, but on the back of doing things well enough with people, bold enough people, that the referrals come in on a consistent enough basis that I knew I had something real um, and I had something substantial and something I could build. And the premise, the, and the premise of the show is really about how do, how do you build that business? And it sounds like this was not something that you you said and you woke up one day and you're like, I'm going to start a business. One thing led to another. When when you're going through that process, what kept you going? I guess is is the best way I can put it. Yeah. Why Why did yeah. you keep doing it to to eventually build a business out of it? Yeah. Well, that was the thing. I mean, what the third part of what I can't do well is do what I'm told. And so I love to do what I want to do. And I wanted to do things my way. I wanted to have my own business. I, I love the speaking. I mean, it all goes back to that same thing. I love being in front of people. I love being a teacher who yell at me for being the center of attention. And now when I'm a speaker, I'm absolutely the center of attention. Um, so I, I, it's just the perfect fit for me. The reason I wanted to do it is because the business is a 100% representation of who I am. When I'm on stage, I get to be 100% myself. I'm as happy as I could ever be. Uh, I'm fulfilled as I could ever be. There's tremendous meaning in what I do. I know I've had a huge impact on people's lives. I wrote a kid's book um, as a follow-up to the Three Factor book, and people give that to their kids for dyslexia, ADHD, um, and autism, and they just Yesterday, somebody uh, re recommended it on Facebook to somebody. The lady was like, wow, I watched this with my kid, and it was powerful, and it changed their perspective. And so the reason I keep doing the business is because it, it's the vehicle to not have to conform. It's the vehicle to not have to be what other people want me to be. It's the vehicle to be 100% myself and get paid for it, which is then what I speak about. I'm happy because I'm doing those things that people spent their whole life telling me not to do. I'm happy because I get to be myself every day. And then that's what I wish I'd heard at a younger age. That's what I wish someone would have been telling my parents. That's what I wish someone would have told my teachers. Someone would have told my employers. So my life's mission is to get out there and tell those teachers and tell those parents and tell those employers that there's a different, better way. Because I want people to have that amazing experience that I'm having. I want people to have that revelation and change their lives and have a better life. And I think that would be my encouragement to the entrepreneurs that are listening is don't just try to build a business, don't just try to make money, 
the reason your business is going to make money or be successful is ultimately if you love what you're doing every day, if it's a part of who you are, if you get to put who you are into the business. Because what I see, I speak to a ton of entrepreneurs through a group called Entrepreneurs Organization. I've been doing that for like eight years. And a lot of people, their, their goal is growth. Um, but growth isn't necessarily good. Growth isn't necessarily the right fit for everybody. A bigger business, a more mature business isn't necessarily better. Some people are starters. Some people are builders. Some people are creators, but they don't feel like it's okay for them to let go and move on because if they were mature or they were adult or they were professional, they would, they would put on a suit and they would start running more spreadsheets and they would start looking at benefit plans and, and they become more systematic and they, they put pressure on themselves to be someone they're not to fit the business instead of saying, I'm a builder, I'm a creator, and I'm going to keep doing that and I'm going to pass these businesses on to other people. So I think that's the message that I would give the people is it's not about the business is somehow this completely separate thing from me and I can somehow be really good at my business while trying to be something that I'm not. I think we need to try to fuse those two things together. We're talking with Dave Rendell here on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. As I said earlier, the uh, powertexting.com gives away a free trip to one listener of every show. So go to podcasttrip.com so you can enter to win that trip. And Dave, you, you, you brought up a really interesting point in that we, if we're great at what we do and we leave the rest to somebody else, how do we incorporate that into our employees? Because we all want our employee to thrive for our businesses. But th there's a fine line between letting employees do what they do best and what their role is. And when you speak to large companies and you, you know, companies with two, three, four hundred thousand people like United Healthcare, how do we find that line of allowing our employees to thrive at what they do while at the same time getting their job done, what they need to do for our businesses. You have to be willing to change the job to fit the person instead of thinking you're going to change the person to fit the job. So why, who created that role? Who wrote that job description? Why does it have to be that way? Um, why does one person have to do that? Why can't we split up differently? So I give people all sorts of options, you know, get, get your team together and have people pick up tasks. Um, I have people list the three things they love to do and put their strengths and the three things they hate to do and that, that focus on their weaknesses and talk to the people on their team and see if they can't swap some duties, can't share some responsibilities. Um, one of my former students was a, was a salesperson for an insurance company and um, she was terrible at the paperwork. And instead of trying to fix her, or change her, or give her incentives, or punish her for doing bad at the paperwork, um, her the agent just hired someone to do the paperwork, and that freed her up to sell way more, it made her way happier, it made her way more fulfilled, it also made her way more successful, and made the agent, agent way more money. Um, and so we think that well, this is the role, this is the job description, this is the way things are organized. Why can't they be reorganized? Why can't they be adjusted? Is the way we're currently doing working? And the answer is no. Look at the engagement numbers at work. Look at the success we have. Look at shows like The Office, where it's basically an assumption, um, almost nationwide, that your job is going to be somewhat terrible um, and something to be uh, dealt with um, and, and endured. Certainly, that's something that can be enjoyed. And that's what we've created with these systems and structures that don't take into account the people in them. So. 
when I talk to managers and I talk to corporations, uh, and, and especially when it is really big, you have tremendous flexibility. You have all sorts of people where there's probably somebody for everything, and you have the ability to dice things up into super small slices where people really can do whatever they want. Um, so I think there's far more opportunity for us to match the work of the person and take advantage of it. Because we think, yeah, but isn't it easier to just tell the person this is the way it has to be? Um, and that's, that doesn't work very well. Uh, and that's what I teach people. I have a six, year, six years of study in psychology. I have a master's degree in counseling psychology. And what I learned in studying that is you really don't change people that much. You think you're going to turn someone into a salesperson or turn someone into an office manager just because that's the role you're not going to. It doesn't fit their strengths and it falls every day on their weaknesses. Their confidence is going to be low, their energy is going to be low, and their performance is going to be low. You have to tap in at some point and who people are if you want to. Yeah, people are people, right? And so once we tap into who that person is, they can be more successful in their role and therefore more successful for our businesses. But a lot of people will tell us that in order to scale, you need to have systems, you need to put people in boxes. How can, how can we do those two things at the same time? How can we scale a business without putting people into a perfect box? Because people are people. Well, I think you have systems and you have processes, and then you make adjustments as necessary. So it doesn't mean you can't have a foundation, it can't mean you don't have a platform. It doesn't mean that you can't. I mean, some of it goes to selection, right? So if that's just the role, spend a lot of time and energy finding what are the kinds of people that fit well in that role, but we tend to not do that. We look at people's education and their experience and things like that. So I think once you've created those systems and structures, that's perfectly fine. But what you need to do then is you need to spend way more time on selection than you do on training, whereas normally we just kind of hire with a, with a short look at people to see if they're like a competent individual. We don't really look at that fit stuff really, really early on. And so I think it just comes to that, is if you have those really strict systems and processes and you don't want to be doing a lot of adaptation along the way, you just need to be really diligent early on to make sure that the people you hire fit and then when you have people who succeed, keep that process going, look at, wait a second, what's this person like? And how do we identify those key traits? And then how do we reproduce this person by finding who's doing it well, find more people like that in the future. So I think they're not mutually exclusive. I just think it still has to be predicated on, if you're not, if you're not adapting to the person, then you need to make sure that the job you've created, you spend a lot of time making sure that the people are the right fit for that job in the best and in today's economy uh, jobs are there are more jobs than there are people and a lot of companies are getting to the point of saying all right let me get someone that's good even if they're not right for the role and it sounds a lot like what you're talking about is saying get smart people find out where they're great and utilize them in that way correct Absolutely. And um, I think if you have created, that's the other reason to do what I just said is because right now there's more people than jobs. And so if when it wasn't that way or it was just kind of somewhere in the middle, if you were creating an organization where people could maximize their strengths and they could be themselves and bring the best of who they are to work, they're telling their friends, they're telling their colleagues, they're telling their family members. And right now you still have a line of people who want to come work for you because people want to work in that environment. When you've created a factory uh, where people just have to do what they have to do and they're all miserable and the only thing they care about is how much they get paid, you're struggling to find people right now. 
And so part of this is looking at the long term as well and not saying, why am I in this difficult situation? And another example, uh, one of my other talks I do is called oppositioning. It's about how doing the opposite of what everybody else is doing. And one of the things I teach people is that when, when the economy is in the toilet, when it's 2007, 2008, everybody lays people off, everybody's unloading people, everybody's trying to cut costs, that's exactly the time you should be hiring. Because that's when the good people are available. And that's when you can build a relationship with people and find the best talent, but nobody does that. And then they complain about how things get tough when the economy tightens up. So I think some of this is being willing to be a little unconventional all the time in a whole lot of different ways and being able to do things differently, not conforming in all the ways that all businesses do and seeing how you can take a different approach instead of saying, well, this is what companies do when things go bad. Ask yourself, well, you know, what if I didn't do that? What if I took a different approach? Is their approach working? They're constantly riding these ups and downs. Uh, what can I do to stabilize that? And when are the best people available? And the answer is uh, when unemployment is high, when everybody's laying people off and when the economy starts. So that's a very different way to think about things, right? Because we all we all get tight when the economy is bad. Even even today, when the economy is good, we have those tight times that we don't want to hire and we don't want to think because there's a fear factor. But if yeah. you take away that fear factor and you say, "Hey, what are you good at, and how can you help me support my business?" I think that's a again a very different way to think about things. Now, in your in your business career. You built businesses that employed people with disabilities. And obviously that led to knowing that there are strengths in everybody. Which came first? Was it, was it working with people with disabilities that allowed you to come up with this? Or because you had this in you and you had this idea and you had this knowledge, did that allow you to work with people with disabilities and build businesses around it? No, it started working with people with disabilities. It was my first job out of college, and I realized it doesn't matter what they couldn't do. It doesn't matter what they don't like. The only two things that matter is what can they do and what do they like. Uh, I work specifically with people with developmental disabilities, pretty serious physical and mental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, people who sometimes couldn't put their clothes on and couldn't shave their faces, and people with some serious limitations and it was so easy for everyone just to focus on their limitations. And what I realized was if my job is to get them jobs, it doesn't matter what their limitations are. It doesn't matter what they can't do. And there's no fixing that. That was the other crucial part. And that's really what led me to some of this. There's no fixing a developmental disability. You don't, you don't change it. You don't say, Oh, the person can't read. So we'll teach them to read. No, they are unable to learn to read. That's the disability. It's the inability to learn and to adapt and to take on that information and process those kinds of things. And so the real question is, where is the person at and how do we take advantage of what the person can do? How do we focus on what they like and what they're good at and, and know that? So that was a big part of, I don't think I put them together at the same time, but then I realized, hey, it's not just because they have a disability. I think this is true for all of us. I think all of us kind of are who we are and there's not too much about changing or fixing that. And that's because there's nothing wrong with it in the first place. And so how do we build on what we have and focus on what we can do instead of focusing on this what will always be a laundry list of things that we can't do and aren't very good at. Such, a, such an interesting perspective. I, I love it. So where do people start? 
So uh, you, can, you can get the Dave's book at drendel.com. It's called The Freak Factor, and it'll give you a beginning to all of this. But Dave, where do people start in identifying this? Like when they get off of this and they know that there are things and they have an, an epiphany that like, oh my gosh, I've been thinking about this all wrong. But what's the first thing that they do? Where do they start? So I'll just walk you real fast through the through the framework. So it starts with awareness. We talked about that earlier. Uh, find how your weakness is also a strength. Do that assessment. See yourself differently. See maybe your kids differently, your spouse differently, your employee differently. See that upside. Uh, the next step is acceptance. Stop trying to fix it. Um, realize that there's no way to have one without the other. You can't be persistent and not stubborn. Uh, at the same time, that's impossible. You can't be tall and short at the same time. Uh, you, it's okay that these trade-offs exist. And then appreciate it. Be excited about the fact that you have this huge strength, um, even though it comes with this corresponding weakness. Uh, and then start amplifying it. Look for ways to turn up the volume. Look for opportunities to turn up the volume. Think about times in the past when you've been more of that thing. You've used that characteristic and it's worked for you and start trying to recreate those. And then that's the next one, alignment. Find that right fit. Look for part-time roles. Start a business on the side. Look for a volunteer opportunity. Uh, just start something. Start an experiment uh, where you look for that right fit. Ask yourself, for the job I currently do or the work that I currently have, what are the parts that energize me the most? Um, and what are the ones that energize me the least? And how do I put myself more often in situations where I can do what I'm best at? And then avoidance. Start looking for ways to minimize, reduce, eliminate those tasks that you don't like. When I was a college professor, I hated grading papers. So I gave less homework. I gave group papers. I gave people presentations that I could grade in class while they were doing it. I reduced that, that requirement because that wasn't where I was going to be the most successful. And my ultimate goal was to eliminate it completely, which I did when I quit teaching. So look for ways to start avoiding it and gradually eliminate it from your life completely, eliminate it from your work, eliminate it from your business. Um, and the last one is what you were talking about earlier, is, is partner with people who strong abilities. Look for those people um, who are good at what you're bad at. The problem is, oftentimes, what are we busy seeing in them? Not their strengths, we're busy seeing their weaknesses. So that goes all the way back to step number one. Don't just do that to yourself. Think about your most frustrating employee. Think about your spouse. And look at how their weaknesses are also strengths, and have that affect how you accept them and appreciate them and give them opportunities uh, to be themselves. My wife is in the other room, and she was a part time college professor, and she didn't like it very much. She didn't hate it, but she didn't like it. It wasn't her thing. But if you start talking to her about interior design, she just comes alive. If you said, if you made the mistake of talking about new kitchen cabinets, and she was at dinner with you, she talked with you for the next four hours about countertops and floors and all around things. And, and that was with no formal training. It's just something that made her come alive. And so I was always encouraging her, start your own business, start your own business, start your own business. How would I get clients? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have an education in this. Um, but we finally got her started. And it's just blowing up every time she does something. People are like, wow, that's amazing. You've got to be kidding me. And so then she started getting the formal training. And she started creating the website. Started getting more customers. She just got her first big commercial job, and that looks like that's going to turn into a bunch of people. And so, I'm not just trying to live out my three factor. I'm not just trying to amplify my weaknesses. I'm not just trying to be who I am. I'm trying to give other people permission to do the same instead of saying, "Hey, 
you know, other people's wives are their business managers as a speaker, and it would save us a ton of money if you would do that for me and make my flight arrangements and contact clients and ship books. And my friend's got a wife like that. I don't know why you can't do that. That's just your role, right? That's just what a good wife can do. Um, that would not only lead to a terrible marriage, it would lead to a, a really bad business partnership. And instead, I'm encouraging her to do something that she did um, instead of trying to get her to do what I need to do. And that's a really important point because we get we put ourselves in those own in those boxes that other people put us in. We put ourselves into the well. I need to do this, and you're saying, why do you need to do that? Correct? Yeah, yeah. Do you really? You don't. You, you don't need to. And if you do, why did you create a life where you need to? And can't you change those things? And that's what some people. I say this in every speech. I when I get to that amplification point. Uh, I, I say, hey, you're probably thinking at this point, yeah, Dave, but I've got goals, and if I'm going to get from here to there, uh, I got to change some fundamental parts of who I am. If I'm going to build this business, I got to change fundamental parts of who I am. And what I tell them is that you need different goals. Why did you set those goals? Your goals need to match who you are. Where you're going needs to match who you are. Uh, who we are needs to match where we're going. And too often, people just take goals because they're quote unquote good goals. One of the best. Things I ever read before I started my business was a book called Creative Nation by Dan Pink. And one of the things he said that always stuck with me was bigger isn't better, better is better. And better is whatever fits who you are and whatever gives you the life that you want. I mean, I go to these conferences sometimes and I speak at them sometimes, but there are these, these scaling conferences and these growth conferences. And somebody will pull me aside and they'll think they're helping me and they'll go, Dave, you know, speaking doesn't scale. You know, what's your plan for creating a business that scales? And I'm like, look, that's not my goal. I have a business where I'm going to work for an hour today, and that's talking on, on the phone to you. Um, I have a business where I get paid a lot for a small amount of my time. I have a business where I get paid to travel to amazing places. I have a business that allows me to drive my kids to school uh, and pick them up at the end of the day and take them to gymnastics. I don't want a scalable business. I don't need to make $100 million. If I can have a life that I enjoy and I can pay my bills and contribute and have do something meaningful that helps people have better lives and changes the lives of kids at school and people at work and parents and their children, that's all I need. It's not your goal should be or success is. Nobody gets to decide what success is. And so set goals that match who you are instead of thinking you have to create a business that's like someone else told you to that's so powerful. And we, we could do this all day. Um, I, I've got a thousand more questions, so I'll have to have you back again. But I need to know, as we wrap up here today, why so much pink? Why do you always wear pink? I'm sure yeah, there's a so, brand there, but there's, there's a deeper story, so, right? Yeah, it's, it's accidental, but it, then it became intentional. And I think that's probably my story, right? Learn through experience, try things, experiment. So um, I started wearing pink because I have three daughters. And in my speeches, I would tell these funny stories I still do about how living with all women has turned me into a woman. Uh, how I learned, for example, if you have to manage your eyebrows, I didn't know that was a thing. Um, I've used uh, far more exfoliating body wash than I ever thought that I would. Uh, and so I started wearing a little bit of paint, and uh, it really worked. And people had really connected with people, and it's a great way to stand out and differentiate myself. And so then, again, to practice what I preach, it's the freak factor. I talk about being different and being yourself. I started wearing a little more. So pink pants, pink shoes, pink socks, pink wedding ring, pink watch band, pink glasses. Um, and it just became a great way to stand out. There's a lot of middle-aged white guys who do what I do. But 
a lot of tall middle-aged white guys to do what I do. And when I go to a conference um, and there are seven people who look just like me, what's that thing that makes me stand out? And it isn't just how I look, um, but it also starts conversations. You know, people say, Dave, why so much paint? And I tell them because you just asked me. I have people who start conversations all over the world when I'm on airplanes, when I'm in hotels, how, how much would you like it if your business, if you were doing your business or living your life in such a way that people are constantly walking up to you and saying, hey man, tell me what you're up to. Hey man, tell me what you're doing. Uh, and so that's what people do with me um, because I wear so much pink. And so I just wear more and more of my triathlon bike, my Ironman's pink is pink, uh, my helmet's pink. Uh, my clothes are pink, my shoes are pink, everywhere that I go um, is pink, and it's a great way to stand out, it's a great way to start conversations, it's a great way to initiate conversations uh, about my business, and it's very consistent with what my business is about, which is standing out and being unique. And then that goes to everything that you're talking about, because you turned pink into a strength where yeah. wearing pink could be seen as a weakness. You know, yeah, I have, I have guys come up to me and go, hey, man, I love the pink pants. I don't think I could pull that off. And what they're saying is, I don't want to deal with the garbage that I would get from the people around me if I started wearing pink pants. Um, and I've had people make comments like that. Like, even when I just wore pink shoes, I uh, went to a business and the guy said, well, a man's got to be very comfortable in his sexuality if you wear those pants. Um, and, and so it, it does. It, I, I want to challenge people's... Uh, beliefs that they haven't really put probably much thought into about, you know, what are men's colors and women's colors? Color doesn't have a gender. Um, and what happens, if, what are the consequences of, of breaking that rule? What are the consequences of, of going outside of that norm? I mean, now, not only that, um, I don't match stuff. So I don't match my socks. I deliberately wear the mismatch. But why does matching matter? What I want to do is keep pushing people to examine these beliefs that we have about the way the world works, because once I realized that weaknesses were strengths, I started wondering if anything that anybody had told me was true. Um, what I'm just starting, starting to discover is most of it isn't. Um, most of the stuff that we're told are the ways of success, um, are not the ways of success. It's the stories told to us by people who want us to live our lives that way because it benefits them, not us. Um, one of my daughters we live in north carolina now and people have southern accents and people use slang that's unique in the south just like they do in all sorts of places and one girl was talking improperly um, in an english class and the teacher said you're never going to become a fortune 500 ceo if you keep talking like that and what my daughter thought but didn't say out loud was well you're teaching at a small private school in north carolina making about twenty five thousand dollars a year you're not exactly a fortune 500 ceo either are you and so we take advice and listen to advice from people uh, every single day who aren't in the position that we're trying to get to. We're not asking ourselves very often, how does Warren Buffett live his life? We're asking ourselves, what did my parents, teachers, and employers tell me? And of course, your employer told you certain things because they want you to do what they want you to do so they can make money from your work. Um, they're not necessarily motivated to see you have a maximum level of success and get the maximum reward for the work that you do. And so we have to re-examine those assumptions and it starts by doing it in really small, safe ways and seeing that nothing bad happens. In fact, lots of cool things happen when I wear pink and when I don't match my clothes. And that leads to conversations and allows me to build my business and it also teaches me that the world isn't really set up the way we think it is and there's a lot of opportunities to do things differently that we never 
So awesome. I absolutely love this conversation. Dave Rendell, uh, go to drendell.com. You can hear more from him or Dave Rendell on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. It's Dave Rendell across the board, but the website is drendell. Thanks for being here and thanks for the knowledge. So much that we can learn from this conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot, man. I had a great time. Awesome. Thanks everyone for being here on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. My name is Adam Kipnis. I appreciate you. And Dave, thanks again. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business, at www.freebookfromadam.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.